We're brought up in a culture that teaches us to succeed. This might be making good money, getting a good job, making our family proud, getting good grades at uni. So we strive to achieve them. You feel like an imposter. Everyone around you seems better than you are. You're told to work harder, that a bit more success will make you feel better. But it never does. There's always more. It's overwhelming. The fear of failure. The feeling of insignificance. So, what now? Hi everyone. Lovely to uh, see so many smiling faces uh, back at me. I don't know how many of you are in London, how many of you are elsewhere. I'm in Leeds at present. Uh, my name is Peter. Um, I live in Leeds and I work for the family of Christian unions, uh, so including the CU at UCL and a whole bunch of others across uh, Great Britain. And it's my pleasure to uh, kick off this week through thinking about success culture and Christianity. And the precise title I've been given is, how can I succeed and fail without it ruining me? Now, let me open with quite a painful confession to make. And it's this. I got a B at A-level geography. You don't know how hard this is for me to say out loud. I got a B at A-level geography. Geography, it was my strongest subject at A-level. It was the subject I went on to study at university, but I was only able to take up my place at Bristol University because they were fortunate, and I was fortunate enough to get a reduced uh, offer. Listen, in my day, there were no A-stars at A-level. I'd expected an A. I'd expected the top grade. I'd been predicted the top grade. I got a B. Now, it didn't help that when I arrived at university and people invariably talked about their A-level grades as if there was nothing better to talk about, I did not find a single other person on my course who got a B at A-level geography. Now, let me tell you, it kicked off a feeling of being an imposter that I never quite shook off for the whole of my undergraduate degree. At times, I had a very low self-esteem. Other times, in fact, a lot of the time, I try to overcompensate through trying too hard at things. Do you know that feeling when you go into a situation or a conversation as if you are already one nil down and you try just a bit too hard to get back on parity with everyone else? It was always hard not to see other people as rivals or those that I needed to prove myself to. Now, this was a long time ago, but to some degree, it still affects me today especially when I'm speaking at universities full of high achievers, I still have the tendency to feel a little bit insecure. I wonder if you've ever felt similarly. I remember meeting a student at an elite, at an elite university a few years ago who'd had the stuffing knocked out of them. Why? They told me I have just failed my driving test. And it is the only significant time in my life I can ever remember failing anything. Failure, well failure can make us risk averse, can't it? It can prevent us from having a go at anything new. Failure can actually make us shrivel up and the fear of failure can be as damaging as failure itself. Some of us, well we find it hard to switch off. We find it hard to stop working because the fear of failure tells us you may not have done enough. Or we become overly aggressive towards 
anything or anyone who stands in our way of achieving. Sometimes mental health struggles are tied up with a fear of failure. And of course, sometimes failure is more serious than either an exam result or a driving test. Sometimes we fail not just academically, but relationally or morally. Sometimes we're aware not just of uh, failing to meet our own standards, but that we really have let other people down. And such failure can be crippling and it can induce a whole lot of shame. So we, we're used to the idea that failure can ruin us. What I also want to suggest is that success can ruin us too. Let me mention two ways. The first is that our supposed successes just don't deliver in the way that we'd hoped. There's a very powerful video, you can find it on YouTube, where some Olympic gold medalists are interviewed. And what's really stark in the interviews is that as well as experiencing great highs, the experience of success also led these champions to crushing lows too. Uh, Denise Lewis was a heptathlon gold medalist. She says, I remember being chauffeured back in the bus to the Olympic Village, having done all my press conferences. And she goes on, I remember sitting there thinking, what are you going to do now? You've done it. What are you going to do now? That feeling alone, she says, made me a bit depressed. She adds, I didn't sleep for weeks afterwards weeks. Here's how one of Britain's most decorated Olympians, Sir Matthew Pinson, put it. He said, winning is as publicly and undeniably as high as you can go. So that you then find yourself thinking everything else is going to have to be down from now. The voiceover asks, if you've won an Olympic gold medal, if you've achieved your purpose, then what next? Is it any wonder that so many gold medal winners feel an overpowering sense of emptiness? Now, I doubt we have any Olympic gold medalists amongst our number this lunchtime, but at a university like UCL, most students work incredibly hard. You're motivated by achievement, by success, working hard, getting ahead, not least in the pressures of the present economic climate. But the experience of these Olympians should cause us to stop and ask, what if, even when I have everything I've dreamt of achieving, what if I've, I succeed and I find that I'm still lacking what I really need? But let me mention a second, perhaps more serious way in which success can ruin us. And it's this, it can make us horrible to be around. It can make us horrible to be around. Most successful people are very proud of their achievements. Particularly, they're proud of the very hard work that they've put in to achieve what they have. Listen to an interview with nearly any successful person and the, they will always tell the interviewer a hard work story. Most people who've made it a long way up the ladder fiercely feel that they've earned their place there through superior effort and hard work. And let me say that is extremely dangerous for us if we're successful, because we become blind to how so much of what we've achieved is not down to our effort. 
A guy called Andy Crouch worked at Harvard University for many years, and he reflects on the Harvard students that he met in this way. He says, there is no one in any class at Harvard who could not have been replaced by someone else equally gifted. A great deal of luck weaves its way through the process from application to acceptance. For that matter, he says, no one even gets the chance to apply to Harvard without an extraordinary number of lucky breaks. My colleagues at other universities, he says, would talk about the stress of divorce and blended families on their students. I rarely met a student at Harvard whose family of origin was not intact. Students at Harvard are disproportionately oldest or only children and therefore recipients of plenty of undivided attention. Now listen to this, he says, just to buy a ticket in the lottery that is the Ivy League admissions process, you have to win a series of lotteries you did not know even existed. Every student I met, he says, anxious, confident or otherwise, had been the recipient of a gift. Do you see how success, achievement can blind us to think it's all about me and my hard work? The reality is none of us chose the country we were born in. None of us chose the family we were born into or the education we've received or the culture that shaped us or the people that have crossed our paths. If you and I are successful, it's because of our health, our brains, our connections, our families, our schools, our talents, none of which we chose all of which life dealt us, our effort, our hard work, is a fairly small ingredient amongst a whole number of others. But because we're prone to forget this, we think success is all about our hard work. When we're successful, we, we act in two ways. We act both with a sense of entitlement, because we feel free to patronise or dominate others who've, who've achieved less than us because we think we've made it. And yet we also feel anxious. We're constantly forced to look over our shoulders, viewing others as a threat. I mean, classically, you see it, don't you, in, on TV programmes like The Apprentice, where the candidates are almost the embodiment of entitlement and anxiety. Last week, I interviewed a YouTuber who told me that his sense of where he was in the pecking order went up and down with the number of thousands of likes entitlement, anxiety. When I find myself working in elite universities full of high achievers, I see this combination all the time, entitlement and anxiety. I wonder, can you see these things at UCL? I wonder, can you even see them in yourself? And so here's the question, how can we fail without our failure feeling final? and therefore inhibiting us. But also, how can we succeed without becoming in, entitled or anxious or just left feeling empty? Now, I'm a Christian. I'm here at the invitation of the UCL Christian Union. And the reason I'm a Christian is because I believe Christianity is true. It makes sense. But it makes sense not just in a kind of rational historical sense, you know, in, in the, the, the idea that the Bible really is trustworthy and records things truthfully. That's important. But it also makes sense in the sense that Jesus makes sense of me. 
He meant makes sense of how humans tick. And therefore, he's able to offer us real hope. So before I hear your comments and questions, and do uh, keep putting them down on Slido, UCLCU, I'd love to just tell you about how Jesus speaks into our success and failure. One of the things, if you read one of the uh, biographies of Jesus' life, is just how indiscriminate Jesus is in his treatment of people. Uh, in the Gospel of John, one of the uh, eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, there are two chapters that are deliberately placed next to each other by John, the author. Uh, in one, in chapter three, Jesus speaks to a man named Nicodemus. He's the man who apparently has everything. He has success with a capital S. In the very next chapter, he speaks to an unnamed woman who apparently has nothing. In fact, her CV is worse than nothing. And yet, beautifully, Jesus doesn't change in how he relates to them. He doesn't have one pattern for successful people who've achieved and another for failures. He's the same. The pattern continues, rich and poor, male and female, privileged and underprivileged, relative failures or relative successes. No one is treated by Jesus as if their lives are valueless. It's very stark. Unlike most of us, Jesus can straddle across all groups in society without feeling the need to change who he is and how he relates when he's in their company. And why is that so? The short answer, and you might want to ask more about this in a minute, is that Jesus reveals a God who loves and values people not on the basis of our earning it, or not because we're lovable, but because he is a God who loves, full stop. In other words, Jesus reveals a God who loves and values people not on the basis of our intrinsic lovability or worthiness. He loves us because he loves us. There's a beautiful picture of this uh, in the uh, story of the original Christmas. Uh, God chooses this unmarried teenage girl called Mary to be the human bearer of his son. And the account is very honest. It tells us that when Mary heard this news, she was deeply troubled and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. In other words, it's saying to Mary, being chosen in this way for this job, being valued in this sense, it doesn't make sense. She's perplexed. And her perplexity is anchored in the reality that she, this ordinary teenage girl in an ordinary home on an ordinary afternoon, has found favour with God. And her only response is perplexity and awe and wonder. You talk to your Christian friend and you'll find that that is how they feel when they have discovered that there is a God, the one true God who loves and values them despite their achievements and despite their failure. See, above success and above failure is a headline that the living God loves us. And that is a reality which is enough to move you to perplexity and awe and wonder. Indeed, here's the most profound thing about the Christian news, that the one true God counts us worthy of his affection and love to the point that he was willing to enter human time and space to bear the punishment that we deserve 
through dying on a cross, that we might be his forever. Let me say that is enough to lift your spirit when you've been knocked to the floor. But it's also enough to humble you when you're puffed up with success. It's a crush to your pride to hear that you could never earn God's forgiveness by yourself. At the same time, it is a wonderful comfort knowing that he considers us worthy of his love nonetheless, to the point of pursuing us to death on a cross. Now, what does that mean then for success and failure? Here's Jesus' answer. Here's the Christian answer. Stop trying to rate yourself as a person. Stop trying to rate yourself as a person. The success and failure culture encourages us to take one small part of our personhood and then to multiply it many times over so that our entire value hangs just on this one basis, this one metric. When I think back to my time at university, I allowed my bad A-level result to be a judgment, not just on one exam or one aspect of my personhood and history, but on me on my whole identity. Do you see, we, we take one aspect, an exam result, a performance, how I feel about my body today, a certain ability, a moral slip up, and then we multiply it many times over to stake our entire significance on just this one metric. Now, Jesus frees us from this thinking. How? Well, when it comes to our moral performance, he proclaims that however far we've strayed, the significance, the favour, the worth and our ultimate destiny hangs not on our moral performance, but on we stand with him. His death alone in our place gives us moral standing. And let me say that's enough to pop the most self-righteous person's bubble, but it also lifts the crestfallen person who feels forever condemned by the failure of their past that they just cannot shake off. But Jesus also speaks into our success and failure in other areas too. He says, look, taking a specific gift or skill and multiplying it many times over to make an overall judgment on our significance and status is entirely misguided. Why? Because each of us is a unique individual shaped by God and comprising hundreds of different skills and achievements. And according to Jesus, each of these can be and should be evaluated separately and critiqued apart from one another. Let me put it this way. Somebody might be at the same time a brilliant computer scientist and a dreadful cook and a brilliant girlfriend and a loveless sister. And none of those metrics by themselves is strong enough to make a tweet long judgment upon ourselves. We can't do it. And Jesus allows us, he frees us to stop making these judgments entirely. When I know where I stand before him, I am free to face and to own my weakness. To learn from them but also to stop thinking that they say anything ultimate about my value or my identity or my future, because those things are wholly bound up in Jesus. But I can also learn to view my successes 
and to own them healthily, whether that's a good degree or a sporting ability or the number of views I get on Instagram. I don't have to deny those things. I don't have to deny the things I'm good at. Indeed, in the Christian story, when you're good at something, it's actually a gift that's been given to you by God. We don't have to make these things the be all and end all, which frees us from crushing anticlimax, even when we succeed. Instead, we're freed to use our God-given abilities to serve others, never feeling the need to prove ourselves to others. And when that hits home, it changes everything. So let me ask, would you like to be able to enjoy the freedom of being able to achieve and to succeed without it being all about you? Do you long to be able to write an essay or receive a word of compliment, or hear a word of criticism without it being all about you? Would you like to be honoured for something without then having to battle pride, or or to be criticised without just spiralling into despair? Would you like to be able to beat the other team, all the while feeling genuine pleasure for those who scored the goals that you would have loved to have scored yourself? Do you long to drop the mask about your failure and still yet no welcome? Jesus says, if you do, then stop judging yourself. Look to me and embrace that all I did through my life and my death for you. Looking forward to hearing your comments and your questions on Slido in a few minutes. Uh, but for the time being, I think I'm heading back to, to Josh or to Hannah. Great. So we've got a fair few questions coming. So this first one, I guess we can start there. Um, Even if I learn to not judge myself by inflating my failures and achievements, how can you live in a society that does judge people this way? Oh, great question. Um, What a a brilliantly uh, composed question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even if Okay, it hits home to me that um, I don't need to uh, rate myself on the basis of the things that I've done. Even if I come to see that, in a sense, my identity and my future are locked offshore to something which um, is tied up in, in what Jesus has done for me, rather than what I do for myself. How do we, how do we live in a, a culture like this? Listen, I think part of it is um, recognizing that even your uh, recognition that um, your identity and performance is tied up in Jesus is is not something that you can be proud of. Uh, It would be dreadful, wouldn't it, to actually turn turn judgmentally on a culture that is judgmental. Um, You know, that's, that's one of the things that it's easiest to do, actually, I think, is to think, Oh, you know, the problem with uh, a culture around us is it's just so judgmental. Um, and therefore, to first of all, first of all, recognize that even if you've come to appreciate that there is a deeper ground for identity and future in Jesus, that that is a gift to you. OK. And, you know, there's there's a letter Paul, uh, the Bible writer Paul writes to a church in Ephesus early on, and he says that even your faith is a gift 
in a sense that you didn't even earn uh, what God has given to you in the gospel. You only love him because he first loved you. And so I think that means that we're able to cut slack to a culture around us. I think it also means that um, uh, within Christian community, certainly, we need to be very aware of the tendency to, to judge each other. Um, in the New Testament, the part of the Bible that was written after Jesus, um, there are large parts of the letters written by the first followers of Jesus to churches, which encourage them not to uh, honour one another or not to value each other on the basis merely of kind of external characteristics. Um, and particularly in the early uh, church that was um, there were two groups there were there were Jewish believers and there were believers who weren't Jews and they were both ten they both had the tendency to look down their noses at each other for different reasons and that's culturally a bit distant but some of the other ways they were tempted to look down their nose at each other are more contemporary um, so in one of the churches it seems that the rich people had a tendency to look down their noses at those who were not rich or or even who were who were bond servants uh, in that day. The Bible's answer is to recognize together that we have come from the same background, even in our, even in our differences, we've, we've been rescued from the same predicament and brought into the same status and identity. And that's the reason why the Bible's most common way for encouraging Christians to relate to each other is as siblings, as brothers and sisters. Now, let me say to you, it is, a, it is very hard to live in a judgmental culture um, without a kind of a community of people around you that are not giving you another way to live. One of the things that's helped me, as well as the kind of this truth hitting home, is being part of a church community where I feel able to drop the mask about my successes and failures. I know that people are bound to me in love, nonetheless. Let me say to you, if you've never been part of a, a Christian community like that, I think that is one of the best parts of it. Yes, Christian communities sometimes fail. Yes, churches sometimes get it wrong. But Christian community that's best means that you can turn up and you can be welcomed and loved regardless of your performance, regardless of what you've done. And that is incredibly energizing, not only to keep your eyes on the God who loves in this way, but also in equipping you to not live judgmentally with those around you, even if you're aware that their eyes are glaring upon you. There's more I could say about that, but that's that's probably enough on that one. Thank you. Um, another question that's got a lot of likes. So I like what you talked about, but you don't but don't want to be a Christian. So you go to you don't want to go to church, follow rules. Why can't I just accept a spiritual reality without believing in Jesus? Oh, what a wonderful question. Okay, let me say a couple of things to that. First, I'm glad that you like what the Christian message has to say. Ultimately, Christians believe that we have good news to share. And this good news isn't just something that we've kind of plucked from the air and projected onto a big screen and called it God. But that, that actually the good news that we hold, in a sense, resonates with all of our deep contours because it's true. Okay, so that, that's the first thing I would say there. The second thing is, I think, if you are to not judge people and yourself on the basis of the things that you do, you have to have a category for intrinsic value. OK, now I'll just speak technically for a minute. 
you can think about intrinsic value or extrinsic value, okay? Intrinsic value says that something has value in and of itself, okay? Not because of what it does, not because of its success, not because of its track record, but it's valuable in and of itself, okay? So that's intrinsic value. Extrinsic value says, I value you, I put a price tag on you because of something you have done, okay? Now, your the question is, if you are to love and value other people in a way that is not just based on extrinsic value, but intrinsic value, what's the category that you can use, okay? You might just say, well, because they're a human, they're intrinsically valuable. But then I want to push back and say, well, what is it about humanity that makes somebody of intrinsic value? OK, now the Bible's answer is each of us has intrinsic value because we're made in the image of God. And ultimately, we see how valuable we are to God by the fact that he was willing to die for us. I mean, ultimately, something's value is shown in the amount that you're willing to pay for it. And we find that in the God of the Bible, we are of infinite value because he was willing to pay everything for us. OK, so it's hard for me to say, OK, um, yeah, just hold on to this. Um, don't use categories of judgment upon other people because you then have to think, well, what tethers another person's value such that they are worthy of infinite honour? regardless of their performance, regardless of whether they succeed or fail. I believe only Christianity ultimately provides an answer to that question. The second part, though, is um, could I not just hold on to Christian ethics without a belief in the kind of um, heartbeat of Christianity? Well, look, that, that is essentially what Western culture is trying to do. The values of Western culture grew up within a Christian worldview, okay? Um, nearly all of the hallmarks that Western culture holds most dear to its heart grew out of Christian soil. I was speaking to a, uh, um, a student in Cambridge last week and they said, well, okay, maybe that is true, but why, you know, maybe this, this is how we arrived at these judgments, but if we like these judgments and these values, can't we just hold on to them and throw away uh, the kind of Christian bit? There are problems with that though. Um, Somebody put it like this, that actually Western culture is a bit like a beautiful cut flower that's been put in a vase, okay? It's been wrenched away from the soil that produced the beautiful flower, but now it's in a vase. And of course, what does that mean? It means it will quickly die, okay? The very values that we hold on to and cherish within Christianity will quickly die. And that's true for you as an individual, as well as a culture as a whole. What is it that will furnish you to keep you relating to others in this way that you yourself have said is quite beautiful? Well, ultimately, it's only in coming to know the very God who has honoured and dignified us in this way. And the Christian conviction is that rather than holding on to some vague spirituality, you can come to, want, you can come to know the one true God himself because it's made it possible for you to come to know him through Jesus. Again, I could say more on that, but maybe we should move on to the next one, Josh. Cool, so another one, maybe a bit of a shorter question. Do Christians really not struggle with fear of failure? Yes, I said at the beginning, do you know, I still feel the imposter syndrome 
in certain universities because of my stupid B at A-level, okay? And, and it's hard when you have told yourself for years or potentially for decades that your value is not dependent upon your own performance, but on who Jesus has made you. It's hard to surrender that thinking um, very, very quickly. Here's the thing, though. Okay, when I struggle with fear of failure, I struggle with fear of failure not because I'm, th I'm thinking about who Jesus has made me, but, 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 but when I forget it, okay, despite the fact that Jesus has given everything for me. And so as you go on as a Christian and as you learn to reimagine your identity in a way that corresponds with reality, you're slightly better equipped day by day and year by year to be able to succeed without it ruining you, but also from the fear of failure as well. Yeah. Cool. There's a couple of questions that are kind of along these lines. So are Christians meant to be successful? Are Christians meant to be successful? Uh, the Bible wouldn't really use the language of, of being successful. The, the sort of language that the Bible uses is more to do with being fruitful. Okay. Um, uh, so in a sense, do we honor God as we use our God-given abilities um, to serve others and to honor him as the one who gave it to us in the first place? Absolutely. Um, I mentioned Olympic gold medalists uh, earlier on the Olympics were a bit of a passion of mine. I worked as a, a journalist um, amongst um, Olympic sports people for a little while. Um, but and one of my favorite Olympians is a guy called Eric Liddell. You might know him as the guy that Chariots of Fire was about. And um, in Chariots of Fire, nobody actually quite knows whether or not Liddell said exactly this. Um, but he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Okay, and what's he saying by that? He's saying, when I run fast, you know, like an Olympic sports person does, they honor the God who, um, who gave them their body, who gave them their drive, who gave them their competitive spirit. And so when we use what God has given us to its utmost, we, we honor him. And when we're free from thinking that this is all about proving ourselves, we can use what we have in order to um, serve others in love. The reason why I think the Bible moves us away from language of success and onto fruit is that, well, as we've thought, we tend, when we talk about success, we tend to think of it as just one metric. And so it's possible to be successful in, in one area, but can have a completely unfruitful life. You, know, you think of it, it when you're so wed into getting the first in a piece of coursework that you don't even notice that your flatmate is, is struggling with their parents' divorce. Or you're so wed to, um, I don't know, doing well in, in, this, in the sporting arena that you fail to notice at all um, uh, that, that your girlfriend or boyfriend uh, needs your attention, okay? What fruitfulness does is it takes the whole of our lives and blends our different ingredients together, recognizing that each of us has different strengths and aptitudes and says, look, use the whole of you, not just a bit of you, to make a difference in the world and in other people's lives and to honor God. Cool. And then there's a again, there's a couple of questions that are kind of getting at the idea of um, what are some practical tips to 
fight thoughts of failure? How should I approach jealousy? Um, how can you still be proud of your achievements? That kind of idea. Sure. Okay. Well, so if you're saying, look, if what you're saying is true, how do I let this permeate my heart a whole lot more? I think I'd probably say a couple of things. One is to spend time getting to know the God who treats you in this way. Okay. And there are various ways in which you can do that. Particularly, um, it would be coming to read the Bible for yourself. Um, here's, here's the wonderful thing about the Christian message, that our relationship with God is not dependent upon what we do, but upon what he has done through his death on the cross to bring us there. Therefore, as I relate to God, it's not that my obedience level affects my standing with him. It's guaranteed. It's on a default acceptance for eternity. And in that light, I'm, I'm able to learn to... Um, to grow in relationship with that God, to learn to love the things that he loves, to learn to hate the things that he hates, to learn to treat the other people and myself in the way that he has treated me. Okay. And therefore, part of what I'm doing as I read the Bible is I'm thinking, what does this teach me about my God? And what are the, what are the kind of ideas or the thoughts or the desires or the emotions that I need to be willing to surrender in the light of the truth that he's shown? Okay, and so I think if you um, are coming from a, um, a kind of place where where success and failure and achievement is something that's been knit into you, one of the things that you can cause to your one of the things that you can do to kind of turn down the volume on those thoughts is come to know the God who doesn't relate to you in that way. And sometimes that will mean saying, "Look, <laughs> God, I find myself grading myself on a curve all the time." But here are the truths that you say about me, that I have intrinsic value through who you've made me and through winning me through your death on the cross. Help me to care more about what you say about me than what I say about myself. Okay. And so that's part of what we do as we read the Bible. But as I said to one of the other questions, it's much easier to take these truths about our identity and future and value and apply them to ourselves if we're part of a community that treats us in that way as well. And therefore part of what it means to belong to a local church, and you'll see this even um, replicated in, in part through the CU at, at UCL, okay? The way that they treat each other, okay? As being worthy of intrinsic value and honor just means that on the days in which they feel as though they've just fallen because, you know, they bummed out in an exam, or the days in which they feel as though they're walking on air because things have gone well, actually, even through just being able to speak the truth to each other and relate to, an each, to each other in a way that matches the contours of how God is, has related to us, can help us to grow um, in, in a healthier sense of um, God-given identity um, that, that he wants us to know. Thanks for listening to our talk. Hope you found it interesting. To find out more about what the Christian Union does, head over to our Instagram at ucl.cu or our Facebook page, UCLCU Christian Union. We'll have all the details for upcoming events over there. If you want to read an account of Jesus's life with someone from the CU, get in contact, you'll be more than welcome. It will be amazing to see you around.